I say all the time at my church, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It's true and false. It, it, you know, define the terms. Define your audience. How does your audience define the terms? That's the question. Because my audience defines religion as Catholicism. Okay. And Christianity is not Catholicism. And they don't understand relational religion, relational gospel-saturated religion. So in my context, I understand James 1, pure religion, and I understand that Christianity is technically a religion, but I also understand in the modern vernacular, what most people think of as religion is works-based and not gospel. So cliches, you know, they, they can cut two ways if we're not careful. So... Let me put this one out. If the gospel is everything, then the gospel is nothing. Is that true or false or both? And I would submit to you that it's both because objectively speaking, the gospel is not everything. I mean, that's, a, that's silly to even take it that direction. Like, like in the most literal sense, you know, the actual objective facts of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, are, th- that is not recounted on every page of Scripture. And, you know, you can't mystically find it under every stone and behind every tree and bush and, and behind every curtain in Scripture, okay? That's not uh, what gospel centrality even gets at or, or points to. But in another sense... In a more thoughtful sense, implicationally, the gospel is everything. Let me give you an example. Um, eleven years ago, right now, uh, let me think. Let's, yeah, eleven years ago, right now, I had cancer, and I was in the middle of chemotherapy. I had Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so there's a very real sense that I could say to you, chemotherapy and radiation were everything. And there's a really stupid sense that that would not be true. Okay. I could say, oh, in the middle of my cancer battle, chemotherapy and radiation were everything. And I could say, since then, in the last 10, 11 years of my life, there's nothing about my life today that wasn't touched Radically impacted by chemotherapy and radiation. Why? Because I would not be here today if it were not for those medical interventions. So I could make a strong case that, yeah, everything about my life today flowed through the reality of chemo and radiation and medical intervention. And so in that sense, chemo and radiation were everything. Like that saved my life. Now there's some holistic person in here going, yeah, if you'd just eaten bell peppers, you'd have been fine. And if I, you know, if I could have given you essential oil and if you'd stop drinking water out of that plastic bottle, you wouldn't, okay, okay. People emailed me all those things too. Fact is I would be dead if I tried all those, all those cures. So, objectively, the gospel is not everything, but implicitly, Everything is radically impacted by the infinite unfolding implications of the gospel. 
Before the gospel, everything leads up to it. And I'm talking about in Scripture, in God's story of time. I think we could even make a case in your own life that before the gospel, everything about your life led up to that moment when you met Jesus. Before the gospel, everything leads up to it, biblically speaking, and after the gospel, everything unfolds out of it. And there is not a theological, philosophical, practical, functional, intellectual, relational, emotional, psychological, or missional aspect of our lives that is not completely, thoroughly deconstructed and reconstructed, rebirthed, you could say, redefined by this gospel. It is colossal good news. Whether you call it gospel-centered, Christ-centered, grace-based, theocentric interpretation, Christocentric interpretation, we set up all these straw men and then we punch them and whack them to facilitate our tribalism. No, 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 we're not gospel-centered, that's that guy. And then we create some anecdote. Almost like, I had pizza, then I got COVID, so therefore I'm not having any more pizza. You know, like that guy said gospels entered one time, and then he said this, so therefore we can't be gospel. It's so irrational how we create division. It's foolish. So whether you want to call it gospel-centered, Christ-centered, grace-based, theocentric, whatever, these, all these words are like on-ramps onto the same highway that go to the same destination. If you're, if, you're, if you're in the business of pure biblical theology, if you're in the business of pure biblical doctrine, the authority of the word of God, it's the same highway, it goes to the same destination. So, let me try to unpack for you in five statements. <laughs> it's 11.57, Brian, come on, man. Here we go, number one, write these down and just think about them for the rest of your life. I promise you, you'll never reach the end of them. Number one, gospel centrality is a theological framework of reality. It is the theological framework of reality. What is gospel centrality when it comes to a theological framework of reality? Here it is. <clears throat> you, have about, you have about three worldviews to choose from, most essentially. Now, there's all kinds of variations and variants, okay? Kind of like <laughs> you got one COVID, but pick your poison, you know? Lots of variants, okay? So you have the no-God worldview. No God. And if there's no God, then you, you got a fork in the road. Naturalist, spiritualist. Naturalist says there's nothing. There's no force. There's no creative power. There's nothing behind any of it. It's purely naturalism. Therefore, you are, science is your God. Which is why we are in this world, follow the science. Until it's politically inconvenient and all that. Okay. So... You know, there's no meaning, 
There's no, no such thing as love or beauty or any of that. It's just all random synapses and evolution. Survival of the fittest, strong eat the weak. That is the naturalist world. Okay. Spiritualist world says there's no God, but there is some kind of force. It's karmic. And so we're going to try to tap into it and leverage it and have a higher consciousness and you know all the places that goes. Second worldview is there is a God. And I have to appease him. So those are your two non-gospel worldviews. So there's no God. We're not there. Uh, There is a God and I have to appease them. Many so-called gospel-believing Christians act practically, functionally live in the there is a God and I have to appease him world. They don't realize it. But but practically their life is, is in that space. Because there, there is a God and I have to appease him, it means that the, the fundamental orientation of my life, my relationship with God, is on the basis of my works for him. Now, there can, there's a lot of iterations of that. The first iteration is you're working to be saved, which is the strictest definition of legalism. Okay, You're working for redemption or you're working for atonement. You're a saving yourself. You're appeasing God, atoning for your sins by your works. But the next iteration of it is those that, no, Jesus died and he saved me by grace and now I'm working still to appease God. I'm, you know, like I'm going to heaven, but I'm still working to appease him on a daily basis. I'm working for his blessing. And when I'm good, he blesses me, and when I'm bad, he whacks me, and he takes away his blessings. And you've never stopped to think about how fickle your God is and how cheap his love is when he's on and off like that. You you never stop to think about how stingy you've made him in in that framework. And you've never stopped to think that your fundamental orientation towards God is how do you perform up to his demands so you can leverage his blessings. And, and here's what subtly happens in your life. When things are good and things are going well, you think, I must be doing well and God must be really happy with me. I must deserve this. Yeah, I'm a good Christian. I'm tithing. I go to church. Look at all this stuff I'm doing. God, God takes care of me. And you're setting yourself up for radical disappointment with God. You're going to walk away. Because your God is going to disappoint you. Because you're going to perform really well and really hard, and one day things are going to go bad in your life. And you're not going to have read the Bible enough to understand what to do when things go bad. And that life with your God sometimes means things go bad. Life with the true God. So when things go badly, you're going to be like, oh, what did I do to tick God off? Or you're going to, you're going to be disappointed that you, that you deserve better. And he didn't come through for you. So, no God, appease God. The gospel presents a third alternative worldview. And that is, there is a God. No way I can appease him. 
No way I can perform up to his demands. But there is a way to relate to him on the basis of mercy and grace. Not only for salvation, but wherein you stand. Every day of my life, the fundamental orientation becomes the, 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 the key, the core characteristic of my relationship with God in a gospel central theological framework is that I can know my God, I can relate to my God, I can enjoy my God on the basis of his mercy and on the basis of his grace, which is infinite and inexhaustible, and his mercy is new every morning, and never, ever, ever on the basis of my performance for him. Now, immediately, the legalist or the legalistic wants to argue It's still right to serve God. Of course it is. We just struggle with the idea that mercy could possibly be a more powerful motivator than fear. If you don't tithe... God's going to get it some other way. That's called a fear-based motivation. That is not biblical. Actually, that's oppressive. That's bondage. That's giving believers a God who is fickle and cheap and selfish and oppressive. Play that out. Tease that out. We've all heard that said. Just tease it out in your mind, okay? So somebody in your church doesn't tithe one Sunday. They hear you say, if you don't tithe, God's going to get it one way or another. I've actually heard preachers give examples. He'll, he'll, your car will break down. Your heater will break. Your house will leak. You'll spend it. Okay. So there's this, right next to God, there's this team of angels. <laughs> the vengeance team. <laughs> and they're, they're, they're watching, okay. And they're like, uh, God, Noah, Downing, he didn't. We, we just were tracking this. <clears throat> Somebody bought his lunch last week, and he didn't tithe on that. Yeah. <laughs> We've heard that too, haven't we? Increase, yeah. <clears throat> oh, my goodness. What have I missed? i got to cross all my T's and dot all my, anyway. Okay, so Noah didn't tithe, God. What do you want us to do to him? And, and God, what did we do last time he didn't tithe? Because isn't this, yeah, yeah, Noah never tithes, God. Yeah, you're right. Well, last time we broke his car. Hmm. Well, what do you guys think? 
Well, we, we were tossing around some possibilities. Um, we, we thought about a root canal. Those were a couple thousand bucks. You know, how much do you want to ding him for, God? Oh, uh, well, how much is he in, in arrears? Oh, uh, well, Lord, it looks like he's about $8,000 in arrears, going back quite a ways in his tithe. 8000 bucks. Let's, uh, oh, that's a roof on a house, definitely. Let's leak the house. I don't want your God. No, thank you. No, thank you. That is not my God. That is sick. So the narrative of the whole Bible is, it, it is, but it is essentially, the Bible is a redemptive historical narrative. It is God's story of redemption. It's God's work in, in redeeming all of his creation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In Luke 24, Jesus taught his disciples the Old Testament. And he went through the books of Moses, and he went through the prophets, and he went through the Psalms, and he taught them all things concerning himself. And yes, the gospel is all throughout the Old Testament. You say, well, show me the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in the Old Testament, just black and white, objective print. Come on. Think, think a little differently, okay? The principle of a fallen humanity in sin and condemnation, ostracized, separated from God, alienated, the principle of a God reaching back into that humanity in, in mercy and in grace and redemption, in covenant love, in kingdom promises, on the basis of his justice, his judgment, and his substitutionary, his one day substitutionary sacrificial uh, uh, payment for that sin, that those principles are the undergirding principles of the gospel, and they are everywhere, all throughout the scripture, and they permeate, permeate the entirety of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And we could talk about Adam and Eve being clothed by the grace of God through the sacrifice of the animals that God slaughtered. We could talk about Abraham and Jesus saying, Abraham understood he saw my day and believed, and Abraham understanding that God would provide himself a lamb, or understanding the blood of covenant love being, being shed in those animals in, in Genesis 15, and all the way through God teaching humanity about sin and sacrificial substitutionary atonement and faith and grace and mercy, it is everywhere. And once you see it, you cannot stop seeing it. Let me give you just one example, and I could keep you here for so many hours. Psalm 36. The psalm is in three parts. The first part is David looking at all the sin of the world, of humanity, and, and the rebellion and the destruction of sin. It's about the first four verses. And then he gets to verse 5. He looks up, and he begins to think about God, and here's what he says. Thy mercy, O Lord. Mercy. Gospel principle is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Thy righteousness is like the great mountains. Thy judgments are the great deep. O Lord, thou preservest man and beast. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men, hear this, put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. 
Now stop and think about this. Mercy, verse 5. Shadow of thy wings, verse 7. Children of men put their trust. Because of your excellent loving kindness, same word as mercy, men put their trust, faith, under the shadow of thy wings. What is David thinking about when he thinks of the shadow of thy wings? I'll tell you what I believe. There's a mercy seat with the wings of cherubim overshadowing that mercy seat. And I think David understood in Old Testament sense what we see in such beautiful color and three-dimensional New Testament view, I believe he understood the only way to relate to God was on the basis of his mercy, on the shed blood of a sacrifice that would be presented at the mercy seat of God under the wings of those cherubim. And I believe he really understood that in God's eyes, David's trust was placed under the shadow of God's wings and he was the object of God's mercy. And I don't care what you say, theologically, that's an understanding of the gospel in the Old Testament. So, it's a framework of of theological reality. Secondly, number two, gospel centrality is a philosophical foundation of ministry. It's a philosophical foundation of ministry. John wrote in John 1... And 15, John bare witness of him, talking about John the Baptist. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now get verse 16. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. Now this is coming back to the the, the translational conversation, sometimes the vernacular just bends my brain like a pretzel, you know. And that's where I, where I really like looking at multiple translations and just, you, it is a 21st century English privilege that we can look at a, a, a selection of formal equivalent to dynamic equivalent and really get our brains around the concept. And what Paul is, I mean, what John is saying in this verse is, out Out of the fullness of Christ, we receive grace after grace after grace after grace. We have a qualitative relationship with God that is immersed in fullness. And it it experiences exponential grace. Grace times grace times grace times grace. We live under a Niagara Falls of grace. Because of Jesus. Now, how does that play out philosophically? John continues and he says um, that Jesus was the embodiment of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Truth is what confronts me with reality. It doesn't care what I think or how I feel about it. It just is. But grace welcomes me and invites me into mercy. And so Jesus being the living word, the manifestation, the visible human manifestation of God, when we could look as human beings into the face of God and we might deserve and even expect judgment and condemnation, what we found was truth, yes, we were exposed and undone, but we also found grace and mercy and not just a little bit of it. We found a supply of grace 
that is infinite and unending and abundant and operating on a fullness principle. But in our ministries, we tend to operate on a scarcity principle. We tend to propagate a message of you haven't done enough, you will never do enough, you can never do enough, you can never give enough, you can never serve enough. There's never enough. When the actual, actual, the opposite is true when you push ministry through the lens of the gospel. Jesus is enough. I, uh, some years ago, Kurt, we were on a trip together, and you, you, we had a layover, and you said, let's go into one of the, the American club or whatever, and I'm like, oh, you go into these? And he's like, oh, you don't? And I go, I just thought this was for, like, really wealthy people, like really connected people. He goes, no, it's for people that have the right credit card. I'm like, really? So he begins to teach me what I did not know about these sky clubs, and when you've got a long layover at the airport, they're really great. It's like... I mean, good Wi-Fi, generally quiet experience, buffet, you know, uh, clean restrooms and comfortable chairs. And I mean, if you're going to be in an airport for more than an hour and a half or two, it's the plate. It's where to go. So, man, I got back and I quickly got the right Delta credit card and I joined in and got the, you know. And next time I had a long labor, I go up to the Delta and I'm like, wow, this is awesome. Okay, I'm in the, I'm in the club now. So that became a habit. And actually, the Delta Club in Atlanta Airport is one of my favorite places now because it's just, I just quite a, it's just disconnected and I sit there. I live on campus at my church, so it's like 24-7, you know. But the Delta Club, it's like I can find a quiet corner and work, you know, think. So anyway, not long ago, this was a month or two ago, I was passing through Atlanta. I had three hours. And I, I told my assistant, yeah, I get to go to the Delta Club, you know. And so I got up there, stood in line to check in. I, I got to the front of the line. I gave the lady my boarding pass. Now there's a line of people waiting behind me. I pulled my wallet out and I realized I've got to have my Delta card. And I had taken it out of my wallet. And I, I just, I died a little death inside. Because now I'm going to have to go down with the commoners. <laughs> you know, so I said to the lady, I said, oh no. I said, I'm supposed to have my Delta card, aren't I? And she said, yes, you are looking at me like, you bad, bad person. Like, I feel her condemnation. Like, I, I don't qualify for the Delta Club. I said, there's no other way? She said, no. I said, okay. I tried to look. I had a mask. It didn't help. You know, I tried to, I tried to look as pitiful as I could. And now I've got to walk the walk of shame. You know, I've got to turn around and all these people behind me watch me get rejected as I walk back, you know, and go down to stand in line at the food court where all the, all the other people are. I turn around and I get to right here before the walk of shame and I hear this lady say, hey, sir. And I stop and I Look back. I'm like, did she just call me? I looked at her and she was looking at me. And I went, she goes, I came back over. She calls me in close. She says, lean. I leaned in. She says, don't react 
just go right in there and enjoy. And I went, oh, just don't, don't react. The walk of shame was this way, and all of a sudden, the automatic doors opened, and I was welcomed into paradise. I sat there for two hours, I ate food, I got Diet Cokes, I worked, it was blissfully quiet and peaceful. I walked out, I found that lady as I was walking away, I turned around and I blew her kisses, I said, thank you, thank you. She's like, it's okay, you, you know, here's the deal, okay. I didn't have the credentials to get into that club, okay? And the whole time I was in there, I was granted entrance by her grace and mercy, and I lived the entire experience on the credibility of another. And if you had stopped me and said, show me, how you got in here, I would have been like, I can't. I don't have any way to show you how I got in here. She just told me I could come in. So here it is. When that permeates you, it cannot help but come out of you in a kind of ministry that allows others to experience your church, your preaching, your ministry, not on the basis of their performance, but on the grace and mercy of God. So we have a hard time believing, we say we believe this, but we have a hard time believing this. It's really that good. By the way, and it doesn't motivate you to lasciviousness. It doesn't motivate you to sin. It doesn't motivate you to spit on grace. It motivates, it, it, well, I'm going to come to that. Okay. So let me give you a diagnostic question. Between these two statements, where do you most live? Where do you most essentially dwell? I must do something great for God versus God has done something great for me. One of those statements is, is a prison cell, and one of them is a theme park. Okay. Am I ministering for something or from something? In the gospel, I minister from his fullness, grace after grace after grace. I don't minister for something, I minister from something. Why? Because in Christ I have everything I need. So many times I get asked this question, and Brian, I'm, I'm sure you do, and Kurt, I'm sure you do. Pastor Kerry, how do I get, and then you fill in the blank, how do I get ladies to come to ladies' Bible study? How do I get deacons to? How do I get men to? How do I get, okay, after Chris's wonderful challenge yesterday, I start to think, how do I get people to the mission field? 
I'm going to tell you something. Anytime your question starts with how do I get, you're already asking the wrong question. The question is, I've already been given everything from the heart of God, so how do I give that to more people? And it won't be long before the people you are giving that to will be turning around going, how do I give this away? And it just happens. Okay, I, I must continue forward. Number, uh, let me, no, no, we're not the three yet, hang on. We want formulas, we want programmatic solutions, we want how-tos. All of which, on the most surface level, can be helpful in some way. Like a chemo port was helpful in restoring my health. They, they insert that, like, under your skin. But once health is restored, they, cut, they circle back around, they take the chemo port out. Gospel-centered ministry philosophy is most essentially organic. You can't box it up, tie it down, calculate it, measure it, program it, or spreadsheet it. It happens by God's spirit. And believe me, I like programs and plans as much as you do. But at the end of the day, when my program really works, what do I do? Man, I killed that one. Look, at, look, look what I designed. And God likes to circumvent our programs. He works through them or around them or in spite of them. I'm just telling you the most fruitful ministry is the ministry you cannot calculate, measure, or see. And practical ministry decisions flow out of this gospel logic. We've all been given a framework of what church is supposed to look like. And to some degree that's helpful and to some degree it's biblical. But in many cases it's just tradition or preference or how somebody else said it should be. And when you really go back to scripture and back to the simple basic plan of God, it kind of sets you free to ask some deep gospel saturated questions. What is healthy for our church? What is healthy for our church families? And at the end of the day, those are the questions that really matter. Not the opinions of others, not your social media critics, not the people that might cancel you. Okay, number three. The next three will be faster. Number three, gospel centrality is a motivational core for all of life. It's a motivational core for all of life. Um, Ezekiel. I love these hard-to-deal-with books. But I want to tell you a quick story about Ezekiel. Ezekiel was carried away to Babylon. He's a Hebrew young man, growing up and training to be a priest. Now, just tease that out in your mind. He's growing up in a very idolatrous day. Israel is in radical decline, kind of like 21st century America. But there's still this, this remnant of people that love God and honor God, and they still go to that temple. And they still have faith in a coming sacrificial Savior. And they still participate in the sacrificial system as an expression of faith. They're still relating to God on the basis of mercy. And 
Ezekiel's dream, like yours and mine, is to serve his God in his hometown, Jerusalem, at the temple, the place that represents God's presence, God's dwelling. I mean, this is his dream. It's biblical, it's theological, it's nationalistic. I mean, it's his home, it's his dream, it's everything. And on his 30th birthday, think about this, his 30th birthday, he's sitting on the bank of an irrigation canal in the middle of the Iraqi desert because his city has been decimated by the enemies of God, desecrated by a pagan people. And it's his 30th birthday. Happy birthday, Ezekiel. Welcome to the fulfillment of your dreams. Your whole life preparing for dream A, and it's gone. And that's when God began to speak to Ezekiel. And he basically said, Ezekiel, I brought you here. I'm sending you to these people with a message. Oh, and by the way, Ezekiel, they're not going to listen. Can you imagine if God, when he called you to pastor, said, okay, you're going to pastor, you're going to plant a church, and, but here's the deal. You're going to go to this place, you're going to preach the gospel, you're going to plant a great church, but no one's going to come and no one's going to get saved. Not the dream that we have. Do you see, motivation for Ezekiel had to be one thing. Obedience to his king. Period. But you know what Ezekiel's message did? It, it, it did three things. It warned the unrepentant that God was still active and they should repent while they had the chance. It warned them that if they didn't repent, they were going to face the judgment of God. And it reminded the few that were still holding on to hope. People like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and those that were in Babylon, that God had sent there. The very ones he said, I'm going to tear you down and, and send you away. But then I'm going to build you back up because I know the thoughts I think towards you. Okay, in Jeremiah's day, Ezekiel was there to say, God's still working. Don't forget, keep trusting him. And you can go to chapter 37, the dry bones coming to life. And, and, and God basically in chapter 37 says, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring a king out of David's line. He's going to save you. He's going to forgive your sin and give you a new heart. And the whole gospel is right there in Ezekiel 37. But Ezekiel was given that message in a far more undesirable day than ours. So it wasn't about celebrity like Kurt preached about. It wasn't about, I mean, our problems... Though they're real, I'm not diminishing, they pale in comparison to Ezekiel's. Ezekiel, I mean, brutal. But he was motivated, why? Obedience. Can I just lay it here? The gospel sets you free from performance-based acceptance and success models. The gospel says, um, you're free to obey Jesus. 
Let me, um, let me read it this way. Gospel does, God doesn't call us to 21st century American Christian success. He called me to a dying church with no money, 100 people, miserable buildings, discouraged people in a frozen tundra. There's nothing wrong with new, new construction, new buildings, and beautiful places. And somebody needs to preach the gospel there. But success is not new or numbers or notoriety. Success in ministry is obedience. And the gospel provides the motional, motivational core for that obedience. The gospel makes me free from your opinions, free from others' success models, free from the man-made structure, system, and expectations that others would impose upon me, free to obey my one Lord. The gospel motivates me to work hard and rest well. It motivates me not to overwork, it also motivates me not to underrest. It motivates me to care for myself so that I can care for others. The gospel gives me the highest purpose in the universe, to obey the voice of my creator who calls me his child, who looks on me with infinite love, and who graces me every day with abundant mercy and strength to do exactly what he's called me to do. Number five, gospel centrality is an emotional resource for steadiness. Now, a lot of you have submitted questions like this, and we never got to them, so I'm going to touch on them very quickly. It's the Jesus of the gospel who said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Gentle is the concept there. And you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. And I think in parentheses it says, because your Bible college's yoke is heavy. Because your denomination's yoke is heavy. <clears throat> the emotional resource for steadiness. As pastors, we swim in emotionally deep, complex, and rough waters. Partner that with the fact that many of us are wired more emotionally in our personality structure, and it's a recipe for disaster if you don't objectively view, differentiate emotion from reality, and then strategically manage and address and compensate for what I would call and what one person questioned the radical emotional dodgeball that we play. I mean, one minute you're celebrating the birth of a healthy baby, and the next minute you're grieving the loss of a loved one, and you are, your emotions are in a psychological tug of war constantly as a pastor, and in a span of 8 or 10 or 12 hours, you have been all over the emotional map, and you, by the way, sincerely so. Like, not art, if you're... If you could just pretend you care, that's not really a pastor. Okay? I mean, you're really feeling this with people. You're really feeling this. And so by the end of the day, you have been emotionally beat to a pulp in good and bad ways. And there is such a thing. Ask any doctor, any psychologist, any therapist, any counselor. It's neurological. It's biological. It's spiritual. It's emotional. It's all of the above. There is such a thing as absolute emotional depletion where you have nothing left to give. 
And in that moment, you think it's the end of the world, you're making no difference. Here's the deal, and you should listen to the podcast I did uh, on Leading in the Gospel with Jonathan Hoover. He is the associate pastor at New Spring with his dad, but he's also the director of psychology of the whole department of psychology at Regent University. He has a PhD in psychology, and he studied extensively pastoral burnout. We, we have a calling, a vocation that is, has a predisposition to burnout because there is no separation between our job and our life. They are fully, wholly integrated, okay? And because we are living in a river, you ever go in the ocean when the waves are too big and they just pound you to death? That's the life of a pastor emotionally, okay? So a fluid, pounding stream of flow requires a different management, a different kind of navigation um, and it's strategic, and it needs to be objectively viewed and compensated for. Anybody watch Downton Abbey? <laughs> Nobody wants to admit it. <laughs> so we were at the bottom of the pile, and I'm like, Dana, you know, we're out of shows that I want to watch. And I, all my friends were like, you got to watch Downton Abbey. I'm like, no thanks, I'm not into British soap operas, <laughs> you know. So I, one, you know, I, one day I said to Dan, okay, we're going to give this three episodes, and if I'm not into it, I'm out. Like, I'm going to go on to World War II or something. Okay. So we get about three episodes in, and now I'm hooked. It's very well written. It's brilliant. It's six seasons. I'm like, come on. I mean, Dane and I are standing in line at Disney World watching it on my phone. You know, we got earbuds in. And, uh, so we watched all six seasons. Well, the, 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 the movie, the, the, the postscript came out, and... Uh, my sons hadn't watched it, so I, I, I got Dana and Haley and my, and my daughter-in-laws, and we had a date night with Dad to go see Downton Abbey. So I'm sitting there watching this movie going, if my friends knew this, <laughs> like, like Kurt, he would make fun of me for this. Yeah. So there's a place in this movie where uh, the key character, Mary, she's inherited the leadership of this, this estate, Downton Estate. But she's exhausted. And she's just absolutely spent, coming come, come to the end of herself. And she's talking to her, kind of like her handmaid, her servant. And the girl's name is Anna. She's, I think it's Anna. She, she's a key character too. Is it Anna? Okay. And she says, thank you. <laughs> you guys are way ahead of me. You hear all the... You hear the men though, they're, yes, it's Anna. Yeah, she's one of my favorites. Okay. It's just the writing of this series is, is really brilliant. Um, put the subtitles on or you'll miss a lot of it. Um, so she, uh, Anna says to Mary, you know, when Mary's just totally exasperated and ready to quit, frustrated, just depleted, what do you want? Like, what do you want? And it's a probing question. And I'm sitting there, and, and I felt it. Like, what do I want? Because I feel Mary's exhaustion in this moment. I'm like, yeah, me too, Mary. <laughs> what do you want? And I'm like, what do I want? And Mary told me what I want. She goes, <sighs> she's crying. She says, I just want everything to stop being so hard. And all kidding aside, I thought, yeah, me too. Me too. 
And Anna says, and I don't have the exact quote, but she, I'm paraphrasing. She says, Mary, Downton is the hub of this whole village. All of these families, all of these children, all the farms, all the businesses of the village are dependent on Downton. Downton is the heart of it all. And then she looked at Mary and she said, and you are keeping the heart beating so that all the village can flourish. That just absolutely riveted me because when I'm at my most depleted, I think, what am I doing? What, what do I want? And God reminds me, as you preach the gospel in this church, as you lead this staff, as you lead this school, as you love and pastor and shepherd these people, you're keeping the heart of supply. You're keeping the blood of God's grace flowing in this place. And it's life-saving for people. So the gospel provides that motivational core, uh, that emotional resource. Listen, Scott Toole one time said to me, Carrie, you do whatever you have to do to keep doing what you do. So some of you ask questions. How do you balance your week? How do you, what's your vacation time? What's your time? What's your schedule? Hey, listen, the answer to that is you sit down with your wife, with some key leaders, you assess your flow, you assess your spiritual health, and then you do whatever you have to do to keep the heart beating. First yours for God, and yours for the church, so the church can continue to know the gospel, and the community continue to have the gospel. Should I take a sabbatical? Yes. Should I take a day off? Yes. Should I take a vacation? Yes. Should I balance my workflow? Yes. Should I disconnect sometimes? Yes. Should I sleep less? No. Should I be a martyr? No. Unless God calls you to, then go be a martyr. But hey, the next two weeks, I'm, Dana's supposed to meet me down here and we're going to go to Disney World for the next two weeks. We're going to walk and eat churros and talk and uh, soak up some sun. Why? Because I have to keep the heart beating. Mine. Okay. Uh, psalms, bike rides, walks, whatever you have to do. You keep yourself emotionally whole so that you can keep feeding the flock. Number five, and I'm done. Gospel centrality is a missional objective for the local church. Paul said, I'm just trying to condense my notes here. Um, we preach Christ. You know, I, I, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ. It is a missional objective. It is a practical reality that we are to preach the gospel continually. Paul said, I'm declaring it to you again. You believed it. You received it. Wherein you stand, you're going to keep hearing it. I believe in go and tell. I believe in come and see. I believe the best outreach program is Sunday morning. I believe the best motivation for our church family to bring lost people is to know that their pastor is going to preach the gospel. Uh, the, the best church growth model is preach the gospel and tell your church family, I'm going to preach the gospel. Why do we try to outsmart God? 
and improve his program to make him more attractive. We have the most attractive message in the world, and we act ashamed of it. We act like we have to excuse it or to put fresh makeup on it or spin it in some way. No, we just need to share it rationally, reasonably, sensibly, lovingly. It's in every book of the Bible. It's the ultimate conclusion of every Old Testament story, and every New Testament passage flows out of it. It all connects. It's all interrelated. And you can never outdo it. You can never exhaust it. I said to Emmanuel Baptist Church 10 years ago, I will preach the gospel every Sunday. I think they wondered, what in the world? I'm going to get tired of that. No, they didn't get tired of it. They fell back in love with Jesus. They forgot it. They forgot how wonderful it was. And now they say this, Pastor, I never wanted to bring somebody before. I never wanted to bring somebody to our church. I got politics and issues and social issues and all kinds of nonsense. Now I want to bring everyone I know. When you preach the gospel to believers, this is my last thought. So many believers have told me, Sunday used to be the worst day of my week. How bad does church have to be for that to be the case? Like, Monday work? I can't wait for Monday. Like, believers going, thank God it's Monday. Oh, we got through Sunday. And they would say to me, yeah, we came to church just just for the, this is our weekly beating of how we're not enough and God's angry and we're not doing enough. We're not giving enough. That is not gospel ministry. Gospel ministry starts with the fundamental presupposition, Jesus is enough. And it goes from there. So now those people say, Sunday's the best day of the week. And I believe the gospel makes Sunday the best day of the week. So that's a flyby of what I believe gospel centrality is. Brian, come close us out.